Well, hello, all you beautiful homesteaders, land lovers, and farm life dreamers. If you are into boutique amazing chicken breeds, do we have a treat for you. Today we visit with Paul Bradshaw, owner of the renowned Greenfire Farms, home of the guy who is responsible for bringing the first auto-sexing breeds of chickens to the USA. He's the poultry industry disruptor today who helped make backyard chicken keeping as fun as his introductions. He effectively doubled the number of breeds of chickens available in the USA over the last 15 years through his rare breed detective work all over the planet and getting them imported legally into the United States. In the process, this innovation stimulated hatcheries across the USA to up their game and diversify to the joy of chicken enthusiasts everywhere. I'm Judith Farrell Horvath, shepherdess and owner at Fairhill Farm in Central Ohio. I'm a livestock educator and farm startup consultant. I bring you stories of others who made the same leap, hear of their successes, struggles, and fails, and their lives today in the hopes that these stories inspire you to pursue your own dreams of food security in suburbia or even a farm of your own. My farm was experiencing power surges and brownouts at the time of this recording, so I called into my own podcast on my cell phone, thus the substandard audio on my side. No worries, Paul sounds great. And now, enjoy the interview. Welcome, Paul. Thank Welcome. you. Thank, thanks for having me. Yeah, I'm so excited to talk to you. I've been a big fan of uh, Greenfire Farm for a long time. So I want to hear all about who you guys are and, and how you started. So let's hear about you. Okay. So um, I live on a farm in North Florida, about 12 miles from the Georgia border and another 12 miles from the state capital, Tallahassee. And we have about a hundred acres here and I have owned this property since the 1980s. And since the early 2000s, we've had a command focus on raising rare livestock. And then since about 2007, almost exclusively focused on chickens. So have you always been in farming? Uh, no, I mean, my, my uh, on the paternal side, my grandparents were farmers in North Carolina. They were row, farm, row crop farmers. They grew tobacco. And I worked on that farm when I was a kid. And then I went to NC State and sort of briefly uh, studied as a pre-vet there and decided I didn't want to become a veterinarian. And so <laughs> but I've always been interested in biology a lot. And so I've always had, you know, something animal related going on in my life. So you decided to go into uh, these chicken ventures in early 2000s. Now, correct me if I'm wrong, but I understand that Greenfire Farm is known for having rare breeds and bringing rare breeds of chickens into uh, the United States. And you guys have the reputation, at least in the in the backyard chicken sphere, you have the reputation for being, you know, sort of the disruptor, if you will, when it comes to genetics and, and new, cool, fun, interesting um, birds in the U.S. Can you talk about that a little bit? Yeah, it's been it's been a crazy, really crazy journey uh, for a couple decades now. But when 
we started the farm kind of formally in the early 2000s. We were focused on, you know, more conventional livestock. So we had cattle, pigs, sheep, and stuff like that. And, you know, there are a lot of challenges associated with large livestock. And, um, and then in about 2007, I was just sort of following the chatter on backyardchickens.com and everybody was interested in this chicken breed um, called a uh, Coronation Sussex. And it's this really beautiful bird. It's a big, you know, white Sussex, but instead of the conventional black hackles that you see in black feathering that you see in like a light Sussex breed, it had lavender uh, feathers and none existed in the United States. Um, so I don't know how much you want me to monologue on this, but the there was kind of this, this guy, I don't want to say a crazy guy, but he probably would have said a crazy there, there was a guy um, named Mark Tully in Australia who had severe depression and they actually ended up doing kind of a PBS equivalent documentary on him in Australia, how he was sort of rescued by chickens. And he was this guy who had kind of a manic ability to focus on projects. And I got in touch with him and they had Coronation Sussex in Australia. And so he kind of, you know, ran all the traps and we legally exported these Coronation Sussex. They were quarantined in the San Diego USDA facility for 30 days and then shipped to Florida. And it was kind of a, a goof. I and mean, we just decided we would try this. And so we ended up raising these Coronation Sussex chicks. And um, there was a website now defunct at the time called Eggbid, which was, you know, an eBay knockoff where you could you could sell, buy and sell live chickens, which you can't sell on eBay. And so we put this pair of juvenile coordination Sussex up for sale on Eggbid and somebody ends up buying them for $4,500 for one pair of chickens. What? Yeah. And this was back in the day when 4,500 bucks was, you know, real money. And <laughs> so we went out the next day, shot all the cattle, shot all the pigs. No, we didn't do that, but we, we did get rid of them and decided we'd sort of double down on chickens. And um, that Hold was on, from, from, wait, 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 from that one event. Yeah. Well, I mean, it didn't okay. take a genius. I mean, I'd go out there every day. There would be some heifer in heat. The bull would try to kill me on the ATV, you know, and it didn't take a genius to figure out that I could make more money off chickens than bulls. and I wouldn't get killed by a rooster, you know? Okay. Okay. Makes sense. Yeah. Continue. And so, so, so we, we kind of did a big pivot to chickens and then from there, you know, we opened up importing all around the world. Um, and, and so, you know, I, I think the interesting point for people who follow this kind of stuff is between the time Columbus arrived in the Americas and the early 2000s, there were a total of, of about 70 chicken breeds in America. And maybe half of those, like the Dominic, had emerged in America from breeding efforts here. And then maybe half um, 
you know, like the Orloff had been imported at other times, the Spitzhalben, the Orloff, there were a number of imported breeds, but a total of about 70 breeds in a period of about 500 years. And since the early 2000s, we've, we've more or less doubled that number of chicken breeds in America through our efforts. So when you talk about being a disruptor, we really were a disruptor. We greatly accelerated the diversity of chicken genetics in America in about a 15 or 20 year period. Wow, that's impressive. So are you talking about actual breeds or are you talking about colors within breeds? I'm talking about actual breeds. I'm talking about actual breeds. So not so, not varieties, gonna... not color varieties within a breed. I'm talking about actual breeds. So now these year it correct just help me kind of get on the same page and for the audience too. So when you say that you help double the number of breeds is that through bringing them into the United States, introducing them to the United so States? Le or? Le legally, legally importing them into the U.S. Um, okay. and Legal importation, okay. And so, you know, kind of our next big import was the Swedish flower hen. And then from there, it just kind of snowballed. And, and we've actually imported a lot of breeds that we've never released for one reason or another. So when I say, you know, we've imported 70 breeds, I'm going to guess we've ultimately introduced maybe 40 or 50 breeds to, you know, United hobbyists in the United States. Um, some of the breeds we imported just kind of washed out. We never propagated them in any significant numbers and we never released them. So it sounds like you have this whole process of bringing them into the country and watching them for a while and doing some propagation and some breeding and, and seeing how they behave, you know, before you release them to the public? Yeah. So, I mean, you would get, mm -hmm. sometimes you would get, you know, flaws in these birds that you would import. So either they would be mm -hmm. extremely inbred and mm -hmm. the chicks they produced, you know, had failure to thrive. They might, they might have low viability to have low hatch rates. And none of the ones that hatched, they would just sort of mysteriously die at, you know, two months of age from failure to thrive. And that's typically a sign of, of inbreeding. Um, and then sometimes the birds just didn't breed true. You know, they, I mean, there's, there are breed standards out there, whether they're written or not, there's sort of generally accepted standards. And so you would end up with, you know, I don't know, feathers on the legs of what should have been clean legged birds or weird colors or not good conformation, the body shape or whatever. And we would, you know, reject those if there were significant defects. Okay. I see. That makes sense. So have any of your breeds that you've introduced been brought into the American Poultry Association? Um, no. I mean, I think there's a push to get, you know, cream leg bars in. There, there's, uh -huh. there's, there's a big following for cream leg bars. Black copper marins were already accepted into the APA. We brought in new bloodlines, and I would argue probably maybe superior bloodlines because we went, we actually went to the National Black Copper Marins show in France and got offspring from the grand champions of those shows. So that's about as good as you can get. And um, and we imported those, but oh okay, it takes a long time. 
to get a bird accepted by the APA. And it's not something we do. It has to have kind of a fan base that pushes that. It's the membership and the show people, right? Aren't they the ones who? Yeah, you have to, you have to, I think, informally show them a number of times. You have to get a certain number of shows under your belt. I don't remember all the requirements, but it's a process. And I mean, we've had APA presidents out to our farm to kind of check out our birds and stuff like that. That's been fun, but we've never tried to, you know, get a bird on the, in the APA, you know, standard of perfection or anything like that, get a new breed. Hmm. Cool. So you started with one type of chicken and then you built out. So how many different breeds do you have today on your farm? Gosh, I don't know. I mean, you can go to our website and count all the breeds, but probably I'm going to guess 40 <laughs> right now or something like that. Okay. And we've, yeah, int- we have, so there's sort of three, you know, classes of imported chicken breeds. We've some, we imported and never released because of the defects we talked about mm-hmm. some we imported mm-hmm. and released and the breed just for whatever reason, petered out. And then most of them, you know, we've imported, released, and and they got traction in the American, you know, poultry market, and and they're still out there, and we're still breeding them. Hmm. So that's neat. So, is this still a family-run business, or have you guys grown beyond just the small family business? No, well, I mean, my wife and I own the farm, and then mm-hmm. we've got. I mean, we currently have four full-time employees and then we have a lot of volunteers, but the employees are are really invested in the idea. I mean, there's a, there's a mission that kind of underlies the commercial aspects of the business that is important to all of us. And, and that's what kind of keeps us moving forward, you know? Um, so that's the way it works. Well, there is a lot of, it it seems Greenfire Farms. First of all, how did you get the the name of your farm? So there's a um, there's a there was this uh, environmental writer in the 50s and 60s, a guy named Aldo Leopold, and he wrote he would write books about. I mean, it was a time when the environmental movement was just emerging, and and so he was one of the early writers in the environmental movement. And he wrote this passage about um, hunting a wolf when he was a kid. And he shot this wolf, this female wolf, and he runs up to her and she had this green fire in her eyes that kind of died out while he was watching her. And he realized at that moment how stupid it was to have shot that wolf and how you know, there's a, a, there's a duty that we have to sort of protect animals and rare animals. And, and so, you know, she had this green fire in her eyes and we just took that and we called it green fire farms. I like that. That's, that's a, I like that. I like that a lot. So um, I was, I was starting to say online, there's a lot of, uh, opinion around green fire farms and generally speaking no one has questioned the quality of your birds that i've ever seen but there seems to be this um love you guys or hate you guys and nothing in between yeah there's this there was a ton of that there was yeah there were there were there was a ton of internet hate when we started 
Um, yeah. Uh, and, you know, sort of the, because we, we created this new category of chickens you could buy and then, and nobody else at the time operated in that space. And the category was sort of super luxury, you know, goods, chickens. I mean, you could go down to tractor supply and buy a chick for three bucks. And in some cases we were charging $199 for a chick, you know, and in many cases we were charging 10 times what tractor supply charged. And, and, and I guess mm -hmm. I would make a few points. I mean, one is that if you don't like us, just don't buy them, you know, we're okay on that. If you think we're charging too much, then I suggest that you fly to Indonesia and find a good supplier of the IOM Ketawa, and then you figure out how to legally import them into the US, and then you go market them, and you undersell what we're charging, and we're fine with that, you know? But <laughs> um, nobody's done that because it's incredibly difficult to do what we do. And um, and we don't really do what we do to make money. I mean, I've been doing this 20 years now, and personally, I've never taken a dime out of the farm. We pay our employees really well, and we continue to grow the farm, and it's expensive to do all those things. Um, so, you know, nobody's getting rich on this, uh, and I certainly am not getting rich on it. Um, I mean, we do it because we think we're fulfilling a really important mission. That's why we do it. And if people don't like what we charge or they think that's crazy, they're certainly entitled to their opinion. But I have yet to find somebody who does what we do and can do it, you know, any cheaper than we're doing it. I didn't realize you didn't even draw a salary off the farm. That's interesting. No, I mean, I collected, you know, over the course of the last 15 years, I finally like put my foot down, refused to do it about a year ago. But for 15 years, you know, two days a week, I collected eggs and washed them by myself and prepped them for incubation and stuff. So it literally comes out to hundreds of thousands of eggs and things like that. Um, and I didn't get paid for that. And I'm okay on that. But I, I do think there's this kind of misperception by the haters that like we're rolling in money over here or something. And that's just not true. I mean, go buy a John Deere tractor and tell me how much money you're rolling in after you go through that, you know? Um, <laughs> so are you, are you doing green fire farm stuff full time? Is that your singular focus at this time? Or do you have off farm income and do other I, things? I, I, I have off farm income, but green fire okay. is, is, it's, it's, you know, it's about break even now. Um, okay. And, 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 you know, we spend a lot of money on our birds and um, we build them really nice pens and it's shockingly expensive to build a nice pen, you know, and we have solar power on the farm and we've got $14,000 worth of lithium ion batteries to power that system. And, you know, you, so you start doing things like that. I mean, we've got, you know, five John Deere Gators, a John Deere tractor, a Ford tractor, a dump truck. You you know, you get that kind of stuff. It's expensive. We, you know, we changed the tires in the dump truck the other day, had a little other work done to it. I think it was six or seven grand. It, it ain't cheap, you know. Farming is not cheap. I can completely sympathize. Yeah. And I don't have nearly the diversity of um, 
chickens that you have, but yeah, uh, or you know, the amount of equipment. But yes, it is it is shockingly expensive. Wow. So what um, you know when you when you kind of started spinning up this whole venture, um, was your goal to be profitable, or is it? Yeah. Like yeah, our goal is to be okay. profitable. Um, I mean, okay, you know, I, when you talk about sustainability, at least in the context of businesses like a farm, you're sustainable. Mm-hmm. You're only sustainable if you're profitable. And so, you know, if you think you've got an important mission to fulfill on your farm, you eventually got to be profitable or it doesn't work. Right. So given that you talked about how you kind of created this new subsegment of the the um, boutique chicken, the, the high-priced boutique Right, the, lug, oh, the ultra-luxury chicken market. Ultra-luxury chicken market, right. That's what you called it, right. Um, are, are your clients small-scale farmers? Are they copycats? It, it, are they backyard enthusiasts in New York City? Who who are they? Yeah, I mean, it varies. I mean, we've, we've polled, you know, we've polled our customer base to see who they are. Mm-hmm. And it's and it's and it's a diverse base. But if you pick the single biggest slice out of the pie, it would be women over forty who are college educated, have some disposable income, and who garden. And so they mm-hmm. tip. They typically have a coop in their backyard, and they. I mean, some of these folks, and I don't. I don't want to you know paint with too broad a brush, but I mean, these are people who would you know, spend $2,000 on a golden retriever, you know, a AKC registered golden retriever and spending, you know, a hundred bucks on a chicken doesn't seem like a daunting or stupid thing to do. And they're genuinely, you know, enthusiastic about their birds. They love their birds and they, they want to get high quality purebred birds whose, you know, parents were treated humanely and they're willing to pay the price for it. Yeah. So I was actually um, one of the first purchases that we made when we got here to this farm. I had heard about this place called Green Fire Farms, and we ordered Bielfelders from you guys. Yeah, they're a great breed. They are. They have remained in my flock ever since. Um, I was unwilling to pony up the money because we were just getting our farm started, and I'm cheap. But my husband gave me a small starter flock from you guys. Um, as a gift and I was astonished and touched like you know farm like city girls get diamonds farm girls get um, you know a flock of Bielfelders from Green Fire <laughs> and, <laughs> and I have never looked back I have been absolutely thrilled and I have to say that they're all chickens are not the same it there is a definite difference. There is a vitality difference. There is a size difference. There's a behavioral difference. And, you know, that, that the difference that I experienced was my first taste of not hatchery, right? So it was, it was that first bifurcation in my mind. I thought you get chickens, you go to the <laughs> hatchery, the chicken store, right? You go to the chicken store for chickens and, you know, choose between the different breeds and there's going to be some variation and that's fine. But Visiting your place and getting stock from you guys was my first um, foray into this. Um, over forty, uh, you know, a little bit of disposable income. So, 
here it is, I guess, from your demographic. I mean, I have a farm, but, you know, at the time, it was just a vegetable garden and chickens. They were the first things before the other four-legged and the rest of the animals arrived. But, yeah, I fit your demographic. So um, it was such a shocking difference that it really opened my eyes to other things that are out there and the difference in the quality of these curated um, uh, these, these curated flocks, if you will, that, you know, small dedicated breeders like you guys do. I mean, how do you get quality like that? I mean, how do you achieve that? What, what's the process look like? Well, I mean, one way we achieve it is probably 60% to 70% of the birds we hatch, we actually ship out to be sold, right? And so we have really tight quality control on whatever we ship out. Um, the birds in, in, in the context of a commercial chicken operation, uh, the birds kind of have this unimaginably good life. They've got these big pens. We do rotational grazing where we plant the pen adjacent to them. And every few weeks we rotate them in. So they got fresh fodder to eat. You know, it's mentally stimulating for them. Um, they're not in any kind of climate control facility. So they're outdoor, you know, 24-7, 365. So they tend to be really hardy. They get a ton of exercise. I mean, a typical field pen for us is maybe 50 feet wide and 100 feet long, you know, and then they've got the adjacent empty pen that they'll go into. So they just get a ton of exercise and they, you know, they live like chickens are supposed to live. They dust bathe and we have the right ratio of roosters to hens so, you know, there's not a lot of social stress in the flocks and, um, and, you know, part of their diet is, is, you know, con conventional chicken feed, unmedicated feed, but then a lot of it is, you know, fresh, uh, forage and, you know, the bugs they catch and stuff like that. So. Wow. So, but being down in Florida, <clears throat> Um, there must be some decent weather events. I mean, like you guys get hurricanes and stuff like that. Yeah, we do. We do Chickens are amazingly durable in a hurricane. Like, I, I, I don't know that I don't know that we've ever had a chicken die in a hurricane. It's crazy. Mm -hmm. And we had a Category Five hurricane, Michael, come through here a couple of years ago. I mean, it killed yeah. people in our county, and I don't think we lost a chicken. We lost electricity for ten days, but we didn't lose a chicken. You know, huh. Did you lose any buildings? No, we got lucky. I mean, some of them just missed getting hit by trees and stuff. And we have a, you know, we have a like a whole building generator, so we can keep the incubators going and the brooders going, the hatchers going. You know, even if we lose grid power, so everything was fine. Is that why you're on solar? Uh, yeah, I mean, the solar does add some redundancy to that, too. I mean, we got on solar. We got on solar a long time ago, mostly, you know, just to have a smaller carbon footprint. But um, Sure. So what um, ha have you been continuously growing? Have you seen like an uptick in this trend with the whole backyard yeah. chickens are cool thing? I mean, I mean, yeah, there was a there was an anomaly during COVID where that one year where everybody went crazy buying plants for their backyard and <laughs> they went crazy mm -hmm. buying chickens. 
And, and so there was a huge upswing there. We didn't, we didn't have enough chickens to meet the demand, but yeah, it's, you know, steadily year by year we grow and you've got to run your farm like any business person runs a business. So we'll have a revenue goal, you know, for the year, typically it's 10% over the previous year. We'll got a thermometer up on our refrigerator where we fill it in to show our revenue every month. And, and so, I mean, we run it like a business and, um, and yeah, it, it has grown over time. The business has grown over time. That's neat. Um, so do you think that, um, do you think that uh, small scale farming and backyard chicken keeping is a fad or do you think it's got some, Oh, it's, I think uh, it's got some it's, stick to it. It's definitely here to stay. I don't think people will go backwards on it. Um, I, I mean, we saw a little uptick after the 2008 recession. I think people were worried about food security and things like that. And they were interested in chickens then. But the truth is it didn't die back after that. And then you saw a little surge during COVID and it hasn't died back. I mean, I, th I think it's a, a feature of the American landscape now. But I, th I, th I think that movement you know, the backyard chicken movement has really evolved in the last 20 years beyond significantly beyond what it used to be. It's it's with a different, to a certain extent, it's within a, a different group now, you know, backyard chickens pre 2000, in my view, there are sort of two big groups. One, well, there was a big group and a small group. Uh, the big group was people who really cared about you know, in an unsentimental way about having a backyard flock. Um, and they would keep some meat birds and some egg producers. And, you know, they would go out and slaughter their birds. And there wasn't like a strong emotional connection with the birds. And then there was a small, you know, subculture of people who were into game birds, fighting cocks and things like that. And ironically, they actually had a pretty strong emotional connection to their bird. Um, cockfighting was ultimately outlawed in every state in America in about 20 years ago. Um, and, uh, there was a big shift in the backyard chicken movement and it went away from sort of traditional rural folks who lived on small farms to people who had chicken coops in their backyards. And so like 30 years ago, you couldn't go you know, on a Williams-Sonoma site and buy a chicken coop, but now you can, <laughs> you know, and, and I think it's a permanent part of, you know, American culture now. Hmm. I like that. Do you think that you guys played any part of that? I, you know, I don't, I, I mean, I think we made it, we certainly made it a more interesting world, you know, to, to, I mean, we, I think, you know, there's some things that we did that significantly changed. I don't, I don't want to say this in, you know, too sterile a terms, but, but sort of the inventory that was available to people who were interested in chickens and, um, and changed in a pretty radical way. And when we did initially, there was this huge blowback against us, you know, I mean, we were constantly being called out in these, you know, forums on the web and stuff. And, and the funny thing is that people who are customers who are great people, by the way, um, they just kind of quietly did their thing. They didn't care what the haters were saying on the internet. They wanted 
you know, this rare, beautiful chicken and we provided it and then they went out and had a good life with it. And, and we just sort of ignored, we never engaged with the, our detractors. We never, never pushed back, you know, in, on the internet forums or anything like that. And we just decided we would focus on our mission and it would take care of itself. But if, if can I talk a little about the mission just for a second? Please. Yeah. You keep talking about these missions. I was going to say, all right, I want to know what these are. Yeah. So the mission is, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's nice to provide these beautiful birds to people that are, you know, I think healthy, um, uh, well-rounded birds, but so, but our mission is really this, our, our mission is to act as a living gene bank for chickens in the world. Um, the, the interesting thing about, well, one of the interesting thing about chickens is unlike mammals, you can't freeze egg and sperm with chickens and then one day create a new chicken. You have to have living chickens in order to keep the genetics of a chicken breed going. And the genetics of chickens generally, I mean, here's the two points I would make. Chickens are extraordinarily important to human beings. So out of the 32 billion exam, the 32 billion animals that in total comprise all the livestock in the world, about 27 billion of those on any given day are chickens. And so a huge amount of the animal protein that humans consume comes from chickens. Um, and chickens do it from a green gas house perspective in a very efficient way. A pound of chicken meat uses about one-sixth or produces about one-sixth of the greenhouse gases that a pound of beef produces. And if you care about climate change and you care about reducing greenhouse gas emissions, a lot of greenhouse gas emissions come from raising livestock around the world. Um, and chickens are a much more environmentally friendly way of raising that animal protein. Uh, and, you know, we can foresee the day when, I don't know if they'll ever ban beef, but I could definitely see the day when beef is highly taxed in order to reduce beef consumption. And people want their animal protein. So chickens are, are the obvious source of the world's, you know, best shot at getting environmentally appropriate animal protein. And at the same time, chicken genetics are hugely compromised. I mean, essentially, if you're eating a meat, if 99.9% .9 of all the meat birds eaten in the world are Cornish uh, rock crosses, and 99% of all the egg layers in the world are leghorns or leghorns, depending on how you want to pronounce it. Um, and so it really comes down to what is essentially two breeds, or in one case, it's a cross, but still, two breeds of chickens um, producing all this protein, either eggs or meat for the entire world. And, and that is a really genetically narrow way of addressing that need. These are birds that are only suited really to live in climate controlled buildings. If you put a Cornish rock cross out in a field pen in North Florida, 
within 24 hours, it would be dead. I mean, it would be covered in ants or it would have just sat there in a rainstorm and gotten hypothermia and not moved. They're really stupid birds and they're incapable of surviving in a free range environment. And then you've got all these very rare chickens around the world that are quickly becoming extinct and they contain the genetics sometimes developed over thousands of years, you know, since pre-Roman times. They contain the genetics that allow chickens as a species to adapt to changing environmental conditions. And all of that genetic diversity is under threat right now. So it's our mission to protect those genetics. And it's nice that we sell Bielfelders to nice people like you. And I, and I mean that sincerely, but by you keeping that Bielfelder flock, you're keeping genetics alive that are really under threat. Um, and so, you know, we have a role in protecting those genetics and our customers have a role in protecting those genetics. And it is a, you know, it's a sacred mission to protect those genetics and nobody is really doing it. There is no farm around the world where, you know, a government is keeping chicken breeds alive. It's all this distributed and informal network of people who are dedicated to keeping their chickens alive, these specific breeds alive. And that's our mission. You know, I mean, we think we're playing like this crucial role. And I think everybody's seen since COVID how important individual genetics are. are. You know, you see a slight variation in the COVID virus, and it has tremendous implications for the symptoms people have and whether it's lethal or not. And also individual genetics in human beings. I mean, some people are susceptible to it. Some people aren't particularly susceptible to it. And chickens are the same way, right? But if you want to make sure 100 years from now, when it's maybe too expensive to keep chickens in climate-controlled buildings, if you want to make sure those genetics survive where you can have chickens free-range and they do fine you know, free-ranging, then we've got to start thinking about that now. And that that's our mission, to be that living gene bank for chickens and to find these really rare breeds and to you know, kind of create this distributed Noah's Ark for chickens where our customers are you know, part of the Ark. And it seems to be going pretty well, but it's kind of shocking when you think about it, that there's no one place you can go in the world except maybe our farm and tap into those kind of rare chicken genetics. Wow, that's interesting the way you put that all together. But that makes a lot of sense. I mean, you've, uh, Livestock Conservancy is one of those organizations that tracks a lot of um, heirloom breeds and genetics of certain breeds of things and, um, you know, cows, goats, sheep, all the different um, breeds. but do they do they also track chickens? Yeah, yeah. The livestock conservancy. They do? Yeah, they okay. do a great job, and we work hand in hand with those guys. Oh, you do? Oh, that's great. Yeah, okay. we've we've um, we work a lot with the livestock conservancy, and okay. um, but they don't they they and it's their mission to coordinate people who keep livestock and they do a fantastic job doing that, but they don't actually have a farm themselves. Right. And true. that's true. And so, the list keepers. 
<laughs> yeah. So we kind of provide, you know, that element of it. Yeah, that's true. That's very true. So um, you mentioned uh, viruses and things. So are you at all concerned about, I mean, this is a, this is a hot topic lately with the price of eggs being so high because of lots of different factors, but amongst them, um, HPAI, the highly pathogenic um, avian influenza. So you have all these outdoor birds. What, what do you guys, what, do you, what, what did you experience back in 2015 when there was this last round of bird flu and bird influenza and, and now? Well, I mean, a few years ago when it kind of emerged up north, we were told that it would burn out before it got south. Right. And um, and for a few years, that was true. But there's now been documented instances of it in Florida uh, in, you know, wildfowl. Um, but, uh, you know, our plan is to test our birds and cross our fingers. I mean, there's no magic barrier to this. Um, yeah. We can't, you know, cover up acres of field pens with blue tarps and hope that a, you know, wood duck doesn't poop over the pen. I mean, the, 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 yeah. uh, but we do, I mean, the USDA tests our flocks all the time. And as recently as I think three or four weeks ago and they're AI clean and, you know, I'm just hoping they stay AI clean. And I guess if one day they turn out not to be whatever protocol the USDA says we have to follow, we'll follow, you know. Wow. That's some risk, but it yeah, it is. Too. Mm. But I mean, there's, there's no, I mean, that's farming. That's farming. There's risk in farming. You, I mean, what, what, what mother nature throws your way, whether it's a uh, hurricane, Michael, or it's avian influenza, it's, it is what it is. Yeah. Or, yeah. you know, a three day cold snap, like we had a month ago that, <sighs> you know, it was the worst in the last quarter century. So. Sure, your birds did okay though, right? Yeah, they did fine, actually. I mean, yeah. some, some of the watering system froze up and cracked, but I mean, it was kind of minor stuff. Not bad. So what, um, what have you guys learned along the way that would be useful to backyard flocksters? So what are little tips and tricks that you would give to people to tell them, this is how you give a good life to your chickens if you're going to be keeping them and you want them to live their best lives and to be the most healthy, high quality birds? Well, I think, you know, to the extent that you can give them space and, you know, fresh forage to, to, you know, eat and scratch around on and things like that. That's nice that you can audit to the extent that you want to, I mean, you can really reduce the maintenance of, um, of a flock. I mean, I would rec I always recommend an elevated coop that's easy for you to get under. You put hay under it so you can rake it out. It's got a wire bottom. Uh, mm. So you can, so you can rake it out and you can compost that. And that kind of keeps everything clean. It's nice to have an automatic door on that coop so they can go in at night and it shuts it, it keeps predators out. And then they need a run during the day where they're protected. And then if you're out in the backyard, um, you can, you can let them out and completely free range. And, um, you know, obviously you want to give them a good, mostly vegetable based diet. Uh, and, uh, and that's kind of it. I mean, chickens are really easy to take care of. 
very easy to take care of. Um, so we've got a, on our website, there's a page called Chickens 101 that kind of walks through the details of it. So uh, if, if you want to see how we keep birds in smaller coops, you can you can go to that and see it. Okay. So if you were your current self talking back to your past self, what, what advice would you give yourself in the past to sidestep an error or um, avoid a problem? Well, I mean, I think if you're going to farm and, and, you know, want to be profitable farming, if, if you're a small scale farmer in America, I don't care what you're farming, you are inherently in the luxury goods business, right? And you, you cannot compete on a commodity scale against large farming interests. There's, oh, mm -hmm. there's just no way you'll have the economies of scale that they have. And yeah. um, so whatever you're selling, you're going to be selling in really small quantities and you're going to have to get a high value add on whatever you're selling. And so you're selling luxury goods and I don't care whether it's chickens or honey or vegetables or eggs or whatever, know from the outset that you're in the luxury good business. And then you're going to have to position yourself in that market that way. And so, you know, um, you know, for example, you know, breast chickens or meat chickens that we sell. If you go to Paris now and buy a breast at lunch, it'll literally cost you $120, $130 for that chicken. And Parisians will pony it up and they'll eat it because they really value, you know, the flavor associated with it, the history of it and things like that. Um, that's the market you're in. If you want to raise chickens for meat, you know, you don't want to raise, you don't want to compete against Tyson. You know, you, you want to be at the very pinnacle of the market and get five times as much per pound for your bird as Tyson gets for a bird. Um, sure. And and again, the same thing is true no matter what you're producing. If you're going to produce vegetables, make sure they're heirloom vegetables that look different, that taste different, that are qualitatively better than anything you can buy at the grocery store. Um, and, and then you've got to build a business plan around that. I mean, you're in a business. It's easy to get sentimental about having a farm because of, you know, cute animals and beautiful sunsets and birds singing in the trees. But at the end of the month, you've got You've got to pay the bills. And so you, mm -hmm. you need to have a business plan. You need to have, you know, strong elements of those business plans. So figure out, you know, what you're passionate about, what you want to sell, how you're going to market it, how you're going to deliver it. The quality has to be really high. The follow through. I mean, so many times, um, you know, with people who sort of do it as a hobby, they might have a really good product and they might be obsessed by a certain type of agricultural product, whether it's an animal or a plant or whatever, but their follow through stinks, you know, um, mm -hmm. they don't communicate reliably. They don't communicate quickly. I mean, realize that when you're in a luxury market, the reason you're dealing with wealthy people is because they're probably type A neurotic people who want, you know, a quick response. <laughs> they, they are. I mean, I am. And <laughs> you know, you want a quick response. You want the response to be literate. You know, you want to be able to understand what the people's, what the person's saying and everything. So just know that that is your market. And if that's not your market, you're probably not going to make it. 
because you're never going to be able to compete against these large scale food producers. Funny you say that. I'm I'm laughing because it's I mean it's funny because it's true. That's the thing, and I'm like, oh my gosh, I'm the same way. I mean, if, if one of my customers writes to me, I I gotta you know write them back right away and respond, and I send something out. I'm like, hello, are we like the answer is yes or no, but not nothing. Come on, you know, let's 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 keep this moving. So, yeah. So I'm hearing from you. Business planning is really important, despite the. Um, sentimental or um, emotional attachment to the venture. Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's, 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 um, that's, that's good stuff that you mentioned um, uh, a thermometer on your refrigerator every month. Is that like percent? Well, you know, you know, like it fills up, you know, like the stupid thermometers you see when people are raising money for charities, you know, they fill. Oh Yeah. Like you know how they fill the, them in, so you hit your goal, right? So we've yeah. got we've got our revenue goal for the year, and every month we fill in the thermometer, and and the employees. And I almost hate to use the word employees because they're friends, they're colleagues, mm-hmm. um, they're really smart people. I mean, the people who work on our farm, the the woman who runs it has a degree in biology. She's valedictorian in her high school class. She got an A in organic chemistry. I mean, she's smart. Oh, no. Oh, yeah. Nobody does that, right? <laughs> nobody and then, gets an A in organic. <laughs> nobody gets it, it. Yeah, that's how you yeah. go. To, that's the weed out course for medical school, right? And she got Absolutely. an A. Absolutely. And, and yeah. then we have another one who has a degree in wildlife management. We've got a guy who's got a PhD in biology. I mean, these are... Oh, my gosh. Yeah, these are smart, goal-oriented, disciplined people. And that's kind of what it takes to pull off what we do on our farm. I found out the hard way. I mean, that's, you know, it takes smart. And so they're reasonably well compensated for that. And we also tie their compensation to, you know, the revenue on the farm. So they get a little bonus, you know, every month based on the revenue and things like that. And so it kind of keeps everybody focused, but they're also, you know, kind, humane people. I mean, they work long hours. They're on a salary, not an hourly uh, uh, employment schedule. They, like our farm manager, I saw her out here this weekend with volunteers that she, you know, wrangled up to to do some stuff. I mean, so it's a really dedicated group. You said you found out the hard way. You want to share any of this? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, so, you know always do a criminal background check or you may end up with sexual predator working for you. We had, Oh Lord. <laughs> um, so, uh, he had, a, he had an explanation for that. Um, but, but uh, sure. yeah, he, he got fired that day. Um, okay. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you yeah. know, farming, it used to be, if you had a strong back and a good work ethic, you could make a living as a farmer. You can't do that anymore. Um, you've, you know, it's as a, it's as important as you understand, you know, how to, you know, maximize the benefits of Instagram and Facebook as it is, you know, how to, how to, you know, disc a row on the tractor, um, maybe, maybe more important. So, um, so you guys started before social media really took off. Did you? We did. Uh, were you early adopters, or were yeah, you yeah, the, we the we group? never we never had a printed catalog or price list, so we oh. imme- we immediately went to the web, which gave us a big advantage. Mm-hmm. 
Okay. And um, and then just consistently, you know, worked it. And we've got a, a woman who does a great job on our social media. She works on the farm full time. Um, but she, uh, I think we've got, if I'm not mistaken, we've got like thirty five thousand Facebook followers now, and twenty five to mm. thirty thousand Instagram followers. And Twitter never did much for us. Didn't seem to really get the traction we needed. Wasn't enough um, anger and uh, controversy. Yeah, I, I guess to keep it going. <laughs> yeah. Um. So what what do you what do you find to be your uh, the favorite breed that you offer? So it varies some year to year. I mean, I think mm-hmm. over a lengthy period of time, you know, the the auto sexing breeds, the Bielfeld, like the Bielfelders you have, or the cream leg bar, there mm-hmm. no auto sexing breeds existed in America before we imported them. And wait, so, wait, say that again. Can can we let's clarify what that what auto sexing means to Okay. The so, so um there's there's well I'll I'll probably give you more than you want. So it's always been a huge challenge in agriculture to determine the gender of a bird on the day it hatches. And, and I I mean, I'll use kind of an analogy. Imagine that you're running, you know, the Ford automobile plant and you have to wait eight weeks and decide which 50% of the cars you've produced, you need to now go scrap and put in the junkyard because that's what they did with chicks. Roosters weren't needed. They needed egg producers. They needed hens, but nobody could sex them until they were six to eight weeks old. So you grow out all these roosters, you realize finally that they're roosters, and then they, you know, culled the roosters and kept the hens. And so it was this incredibly inefficient process. And so in the 1920s, there was this big push to figure out how to sex birds um, when they hatched. And there were these t- sort of two schools of thought. One was um, you could vent sex them. You actually, you know, physically examine the bird and determine when it hatches, whether it's a male or female. It's very difficult to do. Only a handful of trained guys can do it. They don't really share their secrets. And that was one way to do it. The other way to do it was to breed a bird that had different colored feathers on the day it hatches. The males would have one color, the females would have another color pattern. And there were two approaches to that. One was called sex-linked birds, where you take one breed of birds, you cross it with a separate breed of birds, and the chickens it produces, the chicks it produces are sex-linked. So um, the females look one way and the males look another. The problem with those birds is if you then take that next generation of sex-linked chicks and you breed them together, you just get a bunch of non-sex-linked mutts out of that breed, out of that cross. Mm -hmm. And so you always had to go back to the feed store to buy sex-linked birds because you couldn't sustain your own flock. They weren't visibly sexable generation to generation. The British figured out how to create autosexing birds, which produce chicks that are visually distinct by gender at the time they hatch. But then if you breed that breed with itself, it still produces 
visually sexable birds in the next generation. That's called auto sexing. So theoretically, if you own a pair of auto sexing birds, you can breed them generation after generation after generation, and you still have that visually sexable function. No auto sexing birds existed in the United States um, until we got in the game. And we began importing these autosexing birds, you know, at first cream leg bars and Bielfelders, and then actually a number of autosexing breeds. And that was the first time they ever existed in America. So suddenly the backyard chicken hobbyist doesn't have to go to tractor supply every year and buy sex link chicks. They can produce their own visually sexable birds. And that was like a huge leap forward for the American hobbyists. And so we did that <laughs> and, um, and, oh, yeah. and, and so that was, I think, you know, one of the biggest contributions we've made to the genetics in America and those back to your original point, those have been extremely popular as a result of that. I mean, the cream leg bars are beautiful birds. They lay cool blue eggs. So people like that. They have a crest. The Bielfelders are these giant, beautiful birds. You know, they lay a cream-colored egg, but everybody loves their gorgeous birds. Um, and so I'm sure they're popular for that reason, but they're also autosexing. Um, and so year to year, you know, the Bielfelders, the cream leg bars, they've been always been, and, and the black copper marins have been super popular every year. Um, lately, there's been this crazy run on white breast chickens. We, we probably imported the first breast 10 years ago, and there was some interest in it, but people didn't go nuts. And I couldn't understand why they weren't going nuts, but they, they didn't go nuts over them. And then like a year or two ago, it just blew up and we can't keep white breasts in stock. Um, and then we imported these giant fighting fowl from Belgium, like the liege fighter, uh, or the Bruges fighter. And it's, if, if you take, you know, fighting cocks tend to be beautiful anyway, but in America, an adult bird weighs five or six pounds. These things are literally double the weight and probably 50% taller. And so they're just these giant, powerful, gorgeous birds that if you want to protect your flock from predators, you know, it's like having a terminator with feathers. <laughs> They're really, they're, I mean, they're really something and, um, but they're gentle towards people. And so those have been, you know, really popular. Nothing like that existed in the U.S. before. Wait, what are they called again? Uh, either a liege fighter or a Bruges fighter. They're, they're pretty closely related. They're these really rare fighting fowl out of Belgium. They bred them in America, you know, fighting fowl had, metal spurs you would strap to their legs and they would fight yeah. with these metal spurs. They bred the these breeds so they didn't need metal spurs. I mean, they're so big. They have these giant sharp spurs and, you know, I mean, they can, they can kill a hawk. Um, and yeah, yeah, they can. And, um, My goodness. so they're great protector birds, you know, I've never heard of that till today. This is something I knew, learned new today. I didn't, I never heard of protector chickens. Like I keep turkeys around because right. they kind of, I don't know. I mean, they, they tend to like keep things peaceful in the flock, but they, they also seem you? to be a visual deterrent. My turkeys? Yeah. 
Well, I have had turkeys that have attacked me, but they have been the offspring of wild jakes that flew in and had their way with my heritage turkeys. Yeah. And those were the chicks. Those were the half wild offspring. But except for the half wild offspring, no, I have never had turkeys oh, attack me. Yeah, heritage turkeys. Those are right. heritage turkeys I'm talking about. And the other thing is, I've noticed that any roosters, any chickens that grow up, what? Okay, let me let me back up a little bit. I was taught many years ago that turkeys are they they do better with a mother. So if you put a couple chicks, chickens, baby chickens in with a bunch of turkeys, those chicks are much more self-sufficient and vital. And then they go over and they'll like eat the food and everything. And then the turkey chicks are kind of like simple until they get older, until they're bigger and tougher. But in the beginning, they're much more fragile and dumb. They need a teacher. Or as always, they kind of stand around and look at each other and they're too dumb and they sometimes they can't figure out how to eat. But if you put a couple chicks in with your turkeys, they act like teachers. So... You put these chicks in there and your turkeys survive much better. But then you have this chick, a couple chicks that grow up with a batch of turkeys. They think they're turkeys. What I found is that uh, if you put male chicks in with turkeys, those male chicks grow up to be the best behaved roosters. Huh. Period. They don't. I have never had a chicken that grew up thinking it's a turkey ever flog a human, attack a human, That's interesting. or be cannibalistic or, or difficult. And they, and they, they do what they, but they tend to be more free range. They want to wander around more, but then they always go where they're supposed to go at night. Right. So, I mean, it's a trade-off, well, but it's, it's a social phenomenon. So this is interesting <clears throat> to me because it's a similar sort of discovery that these birds are they are they rough on the hens? If they're double the size, they must rip up the hens. No, they're no. they're they're actually. I mean, we've got breeds that are rough on the hens, but that's not one of the breeds. And I've I've never been attacked by one of them. You know, they're not human aggressive. Um, Interesting. So, uh, they're yeah, huh. they're great. They're beautiful birds. They're great birds. I'm gonna have to check them out now. Yeah, check them out. I don't know that I need 25 of them from you yeah, guys, you do. but. <laughs> I don't have space for 25 of them. You start growing turkeys, I'll be ordering from you every year. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. Oh, that's funny. Um, so the auto-sexing breeds and then these other sort of guardian chickens. That's yeah. really neat. Yeah. And the breasts. You mentioned the breasts also. Are people eating their breasts or are they keeping them because they've got cool blue legs? I tried yeah. breasts for a couple of years. I, I, think they're, I think they're starting to raise them for... Uh, sale to exclusive restaurants, you know, and okay, um, and so there's a on Facebook French model, a, yeah. There's a there's a breast breeders group there, and they seem oriented towards you know breeding a great meat bird. So, um, mm -hmm. you know, and, and which is great because now Americans, you know, will be able to eat breast for the first time unless you want to fly to Paris for it, and um. There's been, I mean, one of the interesting things associated with breasts. So breasts, you know, they're it's a breed that's 500 years old. They're supposed to be the ultimate meat bird. Um, they're revered in France, and they were so coveted because you couldn't import them into the U.S. that the U.S. created its own breast facsimile, um, uh, called I think they called it a California Bluefoot. Because breasts have blue legs. And mm -hmm. um, 
they tried to create a bird that looked like a breast, but it wasn't a breast. And then ultimately we were able to import breasts for the first time into the US and and now they really are breasts. So not bad, not bad at all. So I have um a question for you now. Just switching switching gears a little bit. Um, if people are interested in getting into chickens and raising chickens and learning more about chickens, what resources did you find when you got into chickens that you found to be valuable to you? Uh, mentors, reference materials, books, sites, concepts? Well, I think, yeah, I mean, I think care? the Livestock Conservancy folks are probably at the start of the list and uh, the top of the list. And, um, and here I'm going to like plug a competitor, I guess. I mean, Murray McMurray, the hatchery out of Iowa, usually finances their um, the Livestock Conservancy's poultry census. And so it's interesting to look at that poultry census. And they also, every year, the Livestock Conservancy puts out a breeder's directory. So you can find people who are breeding those particular breeds. Um, and then other than that, you know, just sort of online resources or people who are super into the breed. Have you ever, have you ever seen that documentary called Chicken People? Yeah. Yeah. So I mean, yeah. you, you know, you'll find these people, right, who are just obsessed with individual chicken breeds. And mm -hmm. um, so, like, you know, we subscribe to the Poultry Press. There used to be this magazine. I don't know if it exists anymore. For cockfighters, it was called Grit and Steel. You know, I'm sure that's not huh. correct, but. We used to subscribe to that. I mean, that was the first time I ever saw anybody sell a trio of chickens for 3000 bucks, you know? And I was like, wow, you know, something's going on there. Um, and so, I mean, like kind of, you know, met some cockfighters along the way. That was a whole other weird journey. Um, uh, just, you know, I mean, people like that who are obsessed with chickens and, um, you know, we would pump them for information and they were always helpful. So when you're traveling to these, like you actually go to these places to see yeah. these birds. Mm -hmm. So what is that like? Where have you been? I mean, you know, um, all over Western Europe, you know, um, and I mean, England has a long history of being obsessed with chickens. There was a thing huh. called hen fever during the Victorian times when chickens would sell for ridiculous amounts of money and stuff like that. And um, so went over there, met a bunch of uh, poultry fanciers. Uh, it, it's called the fancy, I think over there. Uh, went to the Royal Preservation Trust, which is this little roadside attraction that has chickens that frankly aren't near as nice as the chickens you run into in America. Um, and, 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 you know, met, so met with breeders over there, you know, um, uh, the lady who we got cream leg bars from, she had national champion cream leg bars. She lived in Stratford on Avon, you know, which is Shakespeare's old stomping grounds and stuff like that. Yeah. And we kind of went all over. Um, I was in Italy earlier this year, or last year, last summer, um, been to Germany, you know, um, Switzerland, France stuff like that. So have you noticed that in different areas of the world, different um, cultures have different uh, relationships with chickens? Yeah, the, the problem that they're running into in Western Europe is an extreme amount of government regulation 
um, which has kind of dampened the enthusiasm of hobbyists. You know, for example, if you had recently during the uh, aviation influenza event there, if you had backyard chickens, you had to cover your, you were required by law to cover your coop with plastic and stuff like that. Um, mm. And then you've got, you know, a shift in culture. You've got the Islamification in some parts of Europe where there isn't this tradition associated with certain chicken breeds. Um, I'm not opining on, you know, whether the, the merits of, you know, human migration or anything. But the truth is that, you know, in order to sustain these breeds, you have to have a culture of people who are interested in those breeds. And so if that's not where you come from as a person, if you weren't raised around, you know, Sussex, England and Sussex chickens, um, you probably don't have a strong interest in the Sussex breed. And um, and so some of that is occurring in Europe as you're seeing these population shifts. So in our view, you know, the Western European breeds were really under stress and those needed the fastest attention. And then you've got Asian breeds too, but there actually is a really strong poultry tradition there. And there is also a ban from exporting from some of those countries because of AI. Uh, the US oh, yeah. has banned it. So you kind of have to focus mm -hmm. on what you can accomplish. And then can there you are ship eggs. I'm sorry. Live birds. Can you can you ship? You can, eggs you can ship both. Yeah, there's a mm -hmm. protocol for both. You know, but okay. both require if you ship eggs, you've got to test the parent flocks a couple mm -hmm. times and you have to get a veterinary certificate from a government vet. If you ship mm -hmm. live birds, they do blood testing of the birds. And again, you have to get a a certificate from a vet. And then the bird is quarantined for 30 days when it arrives in the U.S. and it's retested. Mm, okay. So back to Asia, I'm curious. Yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, there's a lot going on there. They have some very cool breeds. They aren't as well documented in Western literature as the Western breeds are for sort of obvious reasons. Um, but there's a lot of, you know, cool breeds in Southeast Asia and stuff. And, um, but, you know, for example, it's, it's, there's currently a ban by the USDA of any importing any birds directly from Indonesia because of avian influenza. So, I have, yeah, that means that, that makes sense given the current climate. I mean, I'm sure it's been, you know, limited and then it's been lifted and then these restrictions go back in place depending on what's going on. Right. Back in 2015, was 2015 the last avian influenza outbreak? I don't know. There was a, a bad strain several years ago that was like 90% fatal in humans. You know, it was bad. Um, yeah. But anyway. So what about those weird looking Asian breeds? Like is the Gulen Gulen Che, the Gulen oh, the, the, the Kankle breed? They're, they're like really tall and they're half naked and they're like dinosaur faced and like, whoa, I didn't know that a creature looked that like that even looked like that exist. There have you seen the one with like the giant legs, you know, the cankle yes. the cankle chicken? Yes. Yeah, I think that's the Ganoi or something like that. And yeah, th oh. those are those are difficult to get your hands on. But I did go to Taiwan, the, ate chicken feet. That was interesting. Oh, 
I mean, I'm an adventurous eater, but I kind of like, I they're haven't not, gotten past the chicken feet thing. They're, they're actually know. not bad. Really? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you would think that's like oh. super, super gross. And they don't look that good while you're eating them, but they, they taste pretty good. You like dip it in batter and fry it on a stick? Is that how you, you know? Eat I mean, I think crunchy? it was, I think it was like deep fried, but. Okay. Um. Anyway. <laughs> so. So what is the chicken that you have enjoyed the least dealing with and why? Um. I don't know the, um, you know, it's, it's like the, the ones that are really a pain you try to block from your memory. Um, Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I mean, we've had a few breeds that were pretty human aggressive, you know, they seem to be uniformly human aggressive and those weren't fun. Mm -hmm. You know, every time you walked in the pen, they would spur you in the shin or something. Mm -hmm. Um, I don't know. I mean, I mean, generally, you know, the, the, even the, the, they vary from, they tend to vary from, you know, kind of perfectly acceptable to actually, you know, fun and engaging. So you tend to mm-hmm. gravitate more towards the fun and engaging ones, but even the, you know, sort of the uh, less obvious choices are, they're fine. I mean, it's, it's, I, I've yet to run into like a truly horrible chicken. So, um, so you, it sounds like you have a whole bunch of places that you've been to. So you probably have, how do you, how do you, I guess, how do you just, how do you learn about what you don't know as far as like the next breed is something that you hear about? Like what, how do you, how are your chicken detective activities? Like, how does that work? Well, you have a lot of different sources. I mean, everybody has the internet. You can get a lot off that. You can go to these obscure chicken forums and you can see discussions. And with Google Translate, even if they're in another language, you can kind of figure out what's going on. And then we've Mm -hmm. got, you know, sources of chickens now that we've established over time overseas and we can talk to them and they go to chicken shows over there and things like that. And, um, you know, you just kind of run down rumors and stuff like that. And, you know, and and look, if you're, if you want to be a chicken detective, there's plenty to do in America, you know, for example, you know, go find a pinch on chicken in America and, you know, good luck with that. They're supposed to exist. There's allegedly one guy in Michigan who, you know, has the last surviving pure flock or whatever, I mean, there's all kind of, you know, chicken mysteries in America you can go solve. Um, Pinchon. Yeah, P-Y-N-C-H-O-N. They were they were the bird mentioned in House of the Seven Gables or something like that in the 1700s. And I mean, there's all okay. kind of, you know, cool stuff out there in America that needs saving. Um, That's interesting. So. Um, so do you have a, um, in your... Well, in the progress of your farm, do you have a goal of bringing a certain number of birds to the United States to market or? Like no, I mean, I just, you know, releasing realist- a certain number. No, I mean, realistically, I mean, we're, we're interested in sort of unique genetics, right? So mm-hmm. finding extremely cold, hardy birds, finding mm-hmm. extreme, extremely heat resistant birds, 
I mean, there are there are breeds in you know northern Africa that are extremely heat resistant that are difficult to get out of there and into the U.S. But given climate change, that might be a good thing to do. Um, hmm. uh, and then kind of everything in between, you know, it, it, it doesn't take much of a tweak of the genome to create a valuable trade in a bird, you know, um, they lay, you know, one more egg a month. That's kind of a big deal. If they are a little more efficient at converting, you know, feed to muscle, that's a big deal. Um, if they're mm -hmm. a little more cold hardy, if they're a little more heat resistant, if they're a little more predator aware, I mean, there are all kind of traits you can select for. And, um, you know, we just kind of look for things that, that exhibit some interesting traits. And a lot of time it's these peasant birds, you know, and I use that term the way it's kind of used in this field, these peasant birds that over time have arisen, they're a land race that, you know, they were never in shows or anything like that, but they have a certain look and they're, you know, particularly adept at something like there's, you know, they lived on an island and they, they know how to eat fish. I mean, there's, you know, there's all kinds of chicken breeds. And so, you know, we look for stuff like that. Interesting. Have you ever bred your own variety? No. No, it really takes, if you, if you want to, to stabilize a genome where you get consistent birds generation to generation, it really takes 20 or 30 years. You'll read these mm. people online, hey, I'm going to create this new chicken breed and they'll cross two different breeds and they'll get 50 chicks and one of them will look cool and they'll say, yeah, look at this new breed. I right? And the chick does look cool, but you'll if you crossed it with another bird, the next generation isn't going to look cool. It's not going to look the same. It it takes at least, you know, 25 to 30 years to stabilize a genome, maybe longer. Um, and, and you can look at cream leg bars as a result, as kind of an example of that. They were created in the 1920s for the first time. It wasn't until I think 1957 that they were adopted into the British standard. It had taken 30 years before they were sort of standardized. Hmm. So, so in the chicken world, there's a big debate. Where did the blue egg gene come from? What do you think? Well, I mean, I assume it came from these Polynesian birds that um, it, it looks like, as best I can tell, you know, maybe five to 700 years ago, Polynesian birds made it to South America on the Pacific coast. Um, and that became what we call now the Aracana which had the blue egg. And mm -hmm. when, for example, the cream leg bar was established, it was because they had sent an expedition to South America and Cambridge had from England sent an expedition to South America and they had got their hands on some Aracanas. And mm. that's how you get the blue and the cream leg bar. Um, so um, as best I can tell, that's probably how it, developed. I mean, it, at one point, it was just a mutation, right, in one bird. And then probably humans selected for that because it was a super cool egg. Yeah. Oh, I think they are. <laughs> so just the sheer color of eggs that have arisen just in the past 15 years. It's amazing. Yeah, they're super. Yeah, they're really beautiful. Yeah, it is. They're fun to have. So, um, well, what do you think? Um, 
what do you think uh, backyard chicken raising is going to play in the future in terms of uh, sustainability and um, energy and food chains? Do you have any thoughts on that you want to share? Well, I think it's going to be important. I mean, it, you know, you can get a superior product with mm-hmm. a much smaller carbon footprint by raising them in your backyard. I think yeah. chickens can be sort of a, you know, the gateway drug to other <laughs> you know, personal agriculture, right? So if the chicken egg tastes great, maybe you want to grow your own heirloom tomatoes the next year or, you know, um, most people don't want to grow a rabbit and then beat it over the head, but, you know, some do. <laughs> Um, but you know, it it is kind of the, it is kind of the gateway drug to other agricultural pursuits. And so in that sense, I think it's also really important. So when people are new to chickens, um, what do you tell them is the time commitment and the number of years commitment to taking care of these chickens? How many years of how much time per day should they expect to expend? So if you have the right setup, I mean, virtually none. Because if you have the right setup, you can fill up a feed bucket, you know, once a week, once every two weeks, once every three weeks, you can have an automatic watering system. If you give them enough space, the manure is not really a problem. Um, So I would sort of define the right setup as all those elements, you know, a good weatherproof place where you can put feed, a good automatic watering system, enough space where the chicken you know, it doesn't concentrate all the manure in a small space and it becomes tedious for you to deal with it. So if you do all that, I mean, you could literally like go on vacation for a month and not have to worry about it much, you know? Um, so I think, I think it's all in the setup. Mm. You like um, overhead waters for that reason? Yeah. We use those nipple waters, you know, so there's yeah. no, there's no backflow into the system, so the water stays clean. There's no mm-hmm. bowl of water that gets dirty. So mm-hmm. um, those systems, and those are cheap. Those are inexpensive. I would set up, you know, a nipple watering system, a hanging feed bucket, some kind of feed saver device at the bottom of the bucket. And that's kind of it. Wow. A bit of um, debate. How do you what do you think about Merrick's disease? What's your opinion on Merrick's? It's, let's talk to let's talk about what Merrick's is first of all. If you want to talk a little bit about what Merrick's is and what's the big controversy. Yeah. So um, weirdly, it's like a variation of a herpes virus that attacks the nervous system of poultry. So mm-hmm. um, it's a virus, not a bacteria. So antibiotics don't help. Um, and once in my experiences, once a bird manifests symptoms of Merrick's, it's going to die of Merrick's. There's no coming back from it. People will tell you there are all these home remedies, but I haven't seen that stuff work. And we've tried it. The only way to it's, it's omnipresent in chicken flocks throughout America. Um, you're probably not going to avoid it. The only way to deal with it is either have birds that are genetically resistant to it. And there are birds that are, or, or vaccinate your chicks from Eric's. So we, we vax, unless you tell us not to, we automatically vaccinate all our chicks from Eric's. And that okay. seems to work pretty well. It's not a hundred percent actually. 
it's probably more like 90% effective, but mm. it seems to work pretty well. Not bad. Not bad. No. All right. Well, is there um, anything else that you uh No, look, I, it was a, that was a privilege. I thought you're, you know, the, I, I, I appreciate the opportunity you gave me to talk about it and um, I hope it was helpful, but I wish you the best and I pre I like your interview style. Oh, um, so uh, anything we can do to help, you know, let me know, but I really appreciate it. Well, Paul, this has been an absolute pleasure. Um, how can people support your business and follow you guys and learn more about some of these amazing birds that you have brought to the United States? Uh, well, our website, you can go to it's Greenfire Farms. That's plural farms.com. Um, mm -hmm. You know, we're on Facebook. We're on Instagram. You can follow us there. We post mm -hmm. stuff several times a week. So you can kind of keep up to speed on what's going on with the farm. We're very transparent about how our farm works. You'll see our pens, our in, you know, incubation set up, everything. Um, we, we want people to see how we run our farm. And, um, and, you know, I would encourage everybody to keep chickens in their backyard if you're willing to do it. I think they'll give more to you than you'll give to them. And it's worth doing. Yeah. And one thing I would also like to mention is that as lovely as the birds are, some people don't want to, and some people don't need the, the minimum order that it takes to ship. So if you have other friends and neighbors, you know, go on with some friends and order a group of chicks together. And then you can assemble a small order collaboratively from someone like Paul at uh, Greenfire Farms. You know, if you yeah. don't need 25 bill felders, but you got two friends who everyone wants uh, seven of their own or eight of their own, go in with the group, order the 25 and enjoy the high quality of birds that come. So get creative. Don't let um, volume or price be a barrier because in my opinion, you get what you pay for and top notch stewardship like this gives you top notch animals, really well, pays you back. I appreciate it. Right. Thank you. Thank you, Paul. An absolute pleasure talking to you. All right. Take care. Bye.